Slava, Maguten Slava, Maguten Slava, Maguten Slava, Ma. This is the beat of the podcast. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever caught your, have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia. I'm Smith. And I'm Lily. So what, what's today's episode about? About. Today's, today's episode is Slava Makutin. <laughs> he is the episode. So today we have the honor and pleasure of speaking to Slava Makutin, who is a New York-based multimedia artist, filmmaker, and writer. Slava was an openly gay journalist in Moscow in the early 90s, one of the first openly gay public figures in Russia uh, at the time. And... He was exiled from Russia in the early 90s after uh, a series of criminal charges were brought against him for the content of his writing. The, the first question we have for you is, in a lot of the things I read of your work, you call yourself a third generation writer. And I noticed you don't talk about your family that much. So I'm just curious, like, what did your family write about? Well, the thing is that my grandfather was a writer who was prosecuted during Stalin's repression, so he was sent to Gulag, and I never got to meet him, but he was a, a novelist who was writing about Russian history, I believe. Yeah, so he was my grandfather, and my father is a professional journalist and writer who published over 20 books of poetry, books for kids. Also, he published a historic novel. I actually talk quite a, a lot about my father because I'm not in contact with him because he's a born-again Christian. So he's quite homophobic and he publicly denounced my work in several interviews. And he described my writing as anal filth. So that was kind of a description that, you know, he uses when referring to my work. And, you know, also I was awarded uh, the Andre Belli Prize, which is kind of like one of the most prestigious and oldest literary awards in Russia. And I think there's some kind of, like, I don't want to say jealousy, but, you know, maybe he thinks of me as someone who's less deser deserving than him. But I was the one who got the prize and not him, you know. <laughs> but my father is kind of like an anti-hero for me because, you know, I always have this uh, tension with him about different things. And, you know, his orthodoxy is one of the reasons why they don't really get along. Okay. I, yeah, I wanted to ask about... The, the staging of the marriage in 94 with your boyfriend in, in, in Moscow. You had said in an interview about that uh, in New York Magazine, you had said 
at this time, it seemed possible to actually get away with something like this in Moscow. And I'm just wondering if you could explain what you meant by, by that phrasing. Well, this, this uh, event happened shortly after homosexuality was officially decriminalized in Russia. So it happened in 93. And that was after 70 years of this uh, draconian anti-gay law where uh, any consensual sex between two men was considered a criminal offense was up to five years in prison. So it was actually something that was like widely used against gay people for 70 years and a lot of them ended up in Gulag and I was actually the first journalist who was writing about the history of gay prosecution and made this extensive research about how the whole law was introduced why it happened and how it was implemented. I interviewed a lot of survivors who went through, through the prisons and camps for being gay and they described the experiences there. And so when I staged that event with my then boyfriend, Robert Filippini, he was actually it was his idea and we were dating at that time for about a year, I think. And he was a member of ACTAP and Queer Nation. They were two very important activist groups based in New York. And this was kind of like their way of like pushing the issue of gay rights in Russia. And I thought this was kind of a cool gesture because it was, you know, involving two people already in the relationship, but I was Russian, he was American, so it was kind of symbolic in that way. And we didn't expect that we would be officially registered as a couple, but it was kind of like a personal political performance that we thought would be a good way to address the issues related to human rights violations for the sexual minorities in Russia. And when I said in the interview that, you know, I was lucky that I got away with it, I meant that it was actually this, like, brief period of liberalism when there was an emergence of underground gay venues and kind of some is that zines and publications for the gay and lesbian people and you know it was a very interesting time and uh, also you know I was very much involved with, with uh, you know the activism part of this whole movement and at that point, it was more liberal approach because it was kind of like part of this general emergence of subcultures. And it was the time after Perestroika where it was this freedom of press and freedom of speech was actually all of a sudden really prominent in Russia for the first time ever. So that event kind of like was a part of a larger context of, you know, like kind of Disney all this like restrictions and oppression and even though our marriage wasn't registered we did manage to get a lot of attention and and we also managed to get away with it in the way that we want we were not gay bashed we were not arrested we were not beaten on the street publicly like what's happening in recent years with the new anti-gay legislation when people are actually being like attacked in the, in the broad daylight, you know. 
Of course, we were condemned in most of the Russian media, but the point was actually bringing attention to like these issues to the larger world community. And in that respect, it was quite successful. But as a, as a consequence, you know, there was a criminal investigation against me for my journalism. And I was actually one of the first openly gay people in Russia, in the country of 160 million. It's hard to believe, but that was the reality. And unfortunately, ever since, there were several attempts to register other sex, same-sex unions, and they were all failed events, and, and in some cases, people were actually arrested. So that's the difference between then and now. I, okay, I have kind of two questions. The first one, maybe you've spoken about this in other interviews before, but the fact that you were, like, you know, the only openly gay person, like, in the spotlight, you know, like, you're a well-known journalist. I'm wondering, was that a choice you made at one point, or was it just, like, a natural decision? Like, you were just always going to be vocal about who you were? Uh, the thing is, uh, was kind of, part of it was, like, my personal decision, and another was basically, like, the circumstances, and my family was kind of one of the main factors, because my parents got divorced when I was 13 and around that time I realized I was gay and I never really had any problem with, with my sexuality and like most people we had to deal with the pressure from their families because they seek the approval. In my case my family was so dysfunctional to begin with that it was never an issue. You know, I was out and I let them deal with it, and my father freaked out, but my mother was actually quite accepting of it. And, you know, it was at the time when it was still considered a criminal offense, but, you know, I was a teenager, I wasn't even, like, practicing any sex for, like, a few years, and it was more like kind of just a personal decision, and I was out with my friends at the time, I was really dangerous, and I, I was lucky that I was actually surrounded by people that were very accepting and understanding. And when I started working as a journalist, it actually really helped with my career because there were plenty of old, closeted gay guys and lesbians working in the Russian media who couldn't come out for various reasons, but they were very supportive of my work because again, for me, it was never an issue. And I think the reason why my journalism was kind of like I was lucky enough to be published in some of the most popular mainstream magazines and newspapers is because, you know, I didn't have this image of like an effeminate and flamboyant person. I was fitting in this like masculine stereotypes of the Russian psyche, and I think maybe that was one of the reasons why people were more accepting of me being gay rather than some gay activists I knew who were actually like way more outrageous in their personal style, you know. And also the fact that I was writing about my personal experiences and interviewing people who were actually very sympathetic of my work that was also very important, you know, when I outed for the first time some of 
really like prominent people from the world of culture and art and show business and some of them chose to uh, come out in in the interviews I conducted and the other ones I outed because I felt like it was very important for the larger community you know to have people who were like well regarded and respected in the Russian culture to come out at the time when it was actually possible to come out, you know? Yeah. Wait, can you give some examples of those people that you outed who hadn't outed themselves in interviews with you? I mean, there was one in particular who was uh, was a very flamboyant, and he still is around, Boris Maiseyev, his name is, and he was a dancer and performer who was essentially, by American standards, he would be considered as a drag performer. But in Russia, his official storyline was that he was uh, dating all these like, female pop stars. But in the gay community, we all knew, of course, that he was like a flaming queen. And so he was kind of like putting advances on me. And I basically used it as an opportunity to out him. And he was one of those people who was actually very grateful because... You know, he was in his late 40s. You know, he was in the public eye for like 25 years before I outed him. But all along, his image was so blatantly homo that it was just so ironic that, you know, he wasn't outed already, you know. We actually kept in touch, and that article was very graphic and detailed because he described how during the Moscow Olympics of 1980, he was forced to perform naked in front of some Communist Party officials. <laughs> and then they, they forced him to like suck the cocks and stuff like this. So there was like a huge scandal. And that interview was republished in several mainstream newspapers. And that was the reason for the first criminal case against me when I was charged with malicious hooliganism and exceptional cynicism was extreme insolence. <laughs> Something out of 1984, but that was the actual criminal offense. Again, punishable with up to three years in prison, I think. And that was actually the, the charge of hooliganism was something that was routinely used against anti-Soviet dissidents back in the 70s when they didn't want to implicate them, them in any like political case involving, you know, freedom of speech or expression. So they would charge them with disorderly conduct or hooliganism. And up to this day, the charges brought against Pussy Riot for the anti-Putin performance was of hooliganism, the same charge that I was charged with. So, and then another person was Zhirinovsky, who's one of the most flamboyant and outrageous politicians who had this image of a family man and then he got divorced and there's like this whole that anyway he's still in the parliament and he's kind of like a pocket opposition and you know he was also very <laughs> it's like it was kind of outrageous at the time when I met him and he approached me to be his press secretary and you know I I couldn't imagine ever accepting the position but you know, I kind of like spent some enough time with him to like figure out what he was about. And 
and I kind of published the accounts. And that was also kind of, you know, like one of those well-known secrets because, I mean, there were rumors about him being gay for, for years. But anyway, I was just like, uh, you know, I was in my late teens when I was doing that. And at that time, as I said, it felt like anything was possible. And it was like this period when all the previous event literature and art and cinema was all of a sudden available to the general public. And it was very interesting and kind of optimistic and I would say euphoric time in Russian history when communism crumbled, the empire crumbled, and, you know, I witnessed the, the uprising that basically ousted Gorbachev and brought Yeltsin to power. And, you know, I was there on the barricades when I saw, like, people rising against tanks and you know, it was a very powerful experience for me as a teenager at that time. And I think it's also kind of uh, gave me the confidence that I felt like being a journalist gave me this opportunity and the platform to become the voice for this uh, underground subcultures. I'm not just talking about the gay subculture, which was like very underground at that time. But also it was, you know, the, the art scene, the, the rock scene, you know, I was going to all these, uh, you know, concerts of bands that were never on the radio up to, up to that point. And then all of a sudden they had like stadiums packed with people, you know. I actually saw you did something on Victor Tsoi and I was friends with him and uh, Georgi Guryanov who was a good friend of mine was the drummer in oh Kino. <laughs> yeah, Victor was an incredible guy. It was, you know, one of my heroes. And actually, in retrospect, I still like to listen to their music. You know, it's so nostalgic to me. That's amazing. Wow. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. I kind of going off this uh, underground culture you're describing, after this attempted wedding and these criminal charges filed against you based on your journalism you ended up filing for like political asylum in the u.s and you were actually the first person to be granted political asylum on the basis of sexual orientation right is that right russian to be exact because there were people from other countries but mm. at the time when i moved here i basically you know managed to escape because I had this invitation from uh, from Columbia University for like a series of lectures, so I used it to get my American visa. But when I went to the uh, campus in Moscow, I basically told them that the main reason why I was leaving is to like escape this persecution. And it happened at the time when they just opened this new criminal case against me. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a very uh, dramatic and traumatic process because at that time I didn't expect that I would be in exile for years and years before being able to go back. I thought I was just leaving for a few months to sit out the charges and I expected that they would drop the charges. And instead they actually issued the warrant for my arrest and they interrogated the people I worked with, they shut down two newspapers that were the main outlets where I published my journalism. They were prosecuting two editors that I closely worked with. 
they went and interrogated my family. So it was like really nasty. I realized that there's no way I should go back. And at that time, I, yeah, I had to like file this formal application. And, you know, that was before the internet. So essentially, like, whatever articles I had when I left Russia, I had to translate them into English to show, to document how and why I was prosecuted. And then Alec Ginsberg was one of the few people that I met in New York, and he helped me to organize oh. a letter from American Pen Center. And then after that, I got another letter from Amnesty International in support of my case and committed to protect journalists. So it was a big campaign, but when I won the case. It was kind of a big victory for not just for me, but also for my immigration lawyers because they had several other Russians already at that time who were applying for political asylum based on the homophobic persecution. And my case also helped them and many other cases that came after to be granted asylum for all those other like lesbian people who, who came from Russia and actually had the Soviet republics, former Soviet republics. We're going to take a quick break and listen to Slava read from his recent book, Pictures and Words. In the beginning of time of air and stone and fire, the coming of ice and age, hard times, tough lives, hard tears, bitter tears, insurgents stormed the machine's eyes when they were very young, when people make the rain, when the desert grows, a warm and foreign place, tales of the future, hard lives, dirty lies, tough love, rough cut, there will be ice, there will be blood. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of how your work shifted uh, after you immigrated and, and specifically using the example of Lost Boys. So like when, when you immigrated, you, you know, you were more of a journalist, you were working with texts mostly, and you sort of more pivoted towards the visual arts, in particular photography. And you have this book called The Lost Boys. And for the listeners, it's uh, a book of portraits of young men and boys from Europe and Russia uh, that belong to different subgroups. And I've heard you describe these these people as belonging to subcultures. And, you know, part of the books, part of the book is like, you know, skaters and punks and skinheads. But then you also have this other component that's like military people. So I guess like cadets. And I'm wondering, in, in my mind, I don't immediately categorize cadets or people in the military as part of a subculture. And I'm kind of wondering what you see as the conceptual through line between a skinhead in Germany and maybe like a 12-year-old cadet in some sort of like Russian military practice? Uh, you know, the thing is that I would say the main theme of my work is kind of a subversion of masculinity. And that's especially true for Lost Boys series because I come from a culture where uniforms are traditionally associated with power, authority, and oppression. And I had to wear a uniform from, from a very young age. And, you know, that was kind of my first introduction into kind of like a performance art almost, because growing up under communism, we had to be involved in this like highly ritualistic procedures where we would like pay tribute to the fallen soldiers or 
celebrate Lenin's birthday or like other important revolutionary holidays. And it was all very like heavy on uniforms and kind of like paramilitary activities that were basically like preparing the kids for this like very uniformal career because it was like a mandatory uh, military draft for everyone, right? And I escaped the army because I told them that I was a homosexual. And I was actually like really, really dreading the, the, the idea that, you know, I, you know, I would have to like, because I didn't, I obviously didn't want to go to the army because I'm a pacifist. So, you know, it was kind of like, you know, maybe at the time when I was arrested for the first time and I realized that people wearing a uniform can cause so much harm to someone like me who's against uniforms, right? So it was like this kind of sudden masochistic connection that was like I found very disturbing and appealing at the same time. So when I came back to Russia to receive that literary prize and when I was shooting the series that later became Lost Boys, I was really fascinated by the whole idea of this uh, flip side of uniforms and juxtaposition of this, you know, young man who basically, you know, like signing their lives to the government to be part of this like faceless crowd of cadets or marines or whatever. And then as an opposite of this spectrum, you know, like different youth subcultures that are very rebellious against the whole idea of uniformity and conformism and, and military. And I just wanted to examine how the whole idea of masculinity manifests in these different segments of the new generation of Russians. So, and also it was at the time when I was able to travel for the first time, so I, I basically the, the whole premise and idea of that book was to show this kind of interconnectivity between, you know, on one hand, this young man who chose this path of extreme conformity, and then on the other hand, various archetypes of this kind of groups that traditionally signify youth rebellion and something that I was personally drawn to. You know, it kind of it's kind of a mind fuck, I guess, in terms of this juxtaposition of like order versus chaos and authority versus like nihilism and like morals versus rebellion. And you know, it also has to do with different like codes of masculinity and behavior that I wanted to examine and also draw the parallels between this oppressive forms of masculinity and then others that are extremely rebellious and nonconformist, you know? So it's basically like this whole spectrum that I wanted to show on the, you know, one cover. I, I want to um, pick up on this idea that of subverting images of masculinity specifically images of gay masculinity. And the context is just like this idea that there's like a kind of international, arguably, image of like the ideal gay man as this like David Beckham, sexy, sporty, muscular, beautiful, ideal man. And there's a relationship to that image of sort of intolerance for those who don't fit into it. So like 
I'm speaking specifically about what like I was told by my friend within the Russian male gay community of like, if you don't look hot in this like certain way, then it's totally acceptable to sort of like comment on that or not be like super positive about someone's appearance. Basically like the opposite of the idea of body positivity or the idea of like any kind of phys- sort of tolerance to different physicalities or different aesthetics. So yeah. It's interesting because actually like I talk a lot about the conformity of gay community and I think it's, it's true for Russian gay community just as much as American, you know, that's one thing that, you know, this uh, obsession with body fascism, as I call it, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that is kind of like a sad reality we have to deal with, but that's also kind of like this part of consumerist structure of gay identity that is very prevalent in the West, particularly, you know, and it's the same model that is pretty much used internationally, I would say, you know, so in my work, actually, you know, I, as I said, I'm very much interested in, in the idea of subverting and transgressing this kind of like traditional stereotypes about what makes man a man, you know, and how that identity is constructed. And, you know, when it comes to my Russian pictures in particularly, I find the whole paramilitary style of uh, Russian society very homoerotic in that sense because when you talk about uniforms, you know, it's a big part of this constructed identity and different cultures have different codes and uniforms that are very highly fetishes, they, they become fetishes for this, this communities. and. You know, my work is very much focused on that kind of uh, fetish aspect of uniforms of all kinds. And I'm basically trying to examine how they reflect different societal norms and situations, you know, and how they interact and how they, how they perform their masculinity. When you look at Lost Boys, it starts with pictures of adolescent and young men and you know, this almost idyllic settings and like very almost asexual context, but then it transgresses into like different fetishistic uh, situations and it ends up, the book ends up with hardcore images of guys in bondage and dungeons and SM uh, roleplay and stuff like this. So it's kind of like, again, I'm showing like this full spectrum from from like this uh, very almost sexophobic environment that I grew up in. But it was like a popular slogan, which was uh, absurd, but is actually used in Russian media that in Soviet Union, we don't have sex. Yeah. <laughs> on Russian TV, we don't have sex applying that we don't have it outside of our bedrooms like it's not there's no nothing sexual about Soviet Union <laughs> but there's it's just that concept that I grew up with would you say that the concept that you're interested in what makes a man a man and like these different iterations and images of masculinity is that like basically the explanation 
as to why you don't really have female subjects in your art? Well, this is actually not true because this is this was one particular book that was only focused on you women in the book, but they're not principal subjects. But you know, I just published my new book of photography where I have actually um, several principal female and transgender subjects. Is, is this is this the Bros and Brosophines? Bros and Brosophines, yeah, it just mm-hmm. came out. I'm not one of those misogynist gay men. Unfortunately, it's also like kind of a unpleasant trend that I find really disturbing when a lot of gay men don't want to include the opposite sex in any shape or form. And I'm not one of those. <laughs> I can assure you. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to like imply that you were. But Lost Boys was about Lost Boys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it would be weird if, if it wasn't. <laughs> As the title indicates, yes. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and listen to Slava read another excerpt from his book, Pictures and Words. Postmodern, postmortem, postpunk, postfuck, post post gay, post rock, stark, naked, exploring your magic, your magic bush. And that's what kills you empathy with animals, ingenious dragons that escape from the zoo and kept on breeding, stuck in the death valley with coyotes and mountain lions, black widows and lizards, drained their blood and laid their poisonous eggs. (laughs) It's very metaphorical. Okay, I have a question that is kind of more about contemporary Russian politics. I think a lot of people know about the uh, anti-gay propaganda law in Russia, but what people probably, non-Russians probably don't know about is like the recent, um, something that has touched the gay community recently and the larger community in general, which is the anti-U.S. sanctions like law that was passed a couple months ago that like blocks certain medications from coming in to Russia, like Russia blocking imports from the U.S., that is particularly something that the gay community reacted to because along with like lots of different kinds of medications, HIV treatment treatment from the US, uh, which is like much better than Russian HIV treatment, is being blocked now. And I'm just curious, like in your positioning as an activist, is that something that you have a position on, like the situation in contemporary Russia and like these things that are unfolding. Yeah. Can you speak to that a bit? I mean, it's terrible. I really, I, I, I mean, I talk about it in every interview and, uh, you know, it's just like uh, one of the big subjects for me. And I, I, you know, I really think what's happening with the sanctions is, is hurting ordinary people on both sides, you know, it's like when Russia had that law implemented, it wasn't just about gay propaganda, but it was also banning the adoption of Russian kids by same-sex couples, which was also not such a big subject for discussion, but it's terrible. As I said, you know, I feel like sanctions only hurt people and they don't resolve anything, and I feel like 
it just helps to cement Putin's popularity and was the best gift for him that helped him to get re-elected, you know, this new Western sanctions on Russia. I think uh, the only way forward is diplomacy and cultural diplomacy in particular, you know. Like, I had shows that were boycotted sometimes, like I had a show in Indianapolis, was my first U.S. solo show, and there were calls for boycotting it because I was accused of being Putin's agent, which is absolutely, I know, considering that I was exiled from Russia for being, you know, I mean, that was before Putin, but, you know, I spoke against Putin so many times, and still, you know, just because... I don't think sanctions is the best way to address the situation, you know. But I also feel like this whole hysteria about Russia and Russian interference in the elections overshadows very important issues like the one we were just talking about. Because, you know, it's like it dominates the news. In the meantime, the like serious legislations are being passed that are actually hurting people already, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're just talking about the like larger context, but to go back to like the context of the gay community in Russia, do you consider yourself to be part of that community or are you like as an exp as a Russian expat in the states are you like involved as an activist with what's going on in Russia? Like do you feel involved in that or are you like more focused on the states or not? actually more involved in bringing my message across to new places where I've never been before and it's like one of the advantages of being visual artist is that it doesn't require translations and my visual art and my photography is a continuation of the work I was doing as a journalist. I mean, I still do journalism and a big part of my work as a journalist, again, is just basically like bringing the message and just like uh, everything I do, I think, you know, could be considered as activism because, you know, the kind of queer imagery I, I work with is probably the most effective weapon against censorship and homophobia and hypocrisy and xenophobia and all that. And, you know, travel in the world with my work and I do artist talks every now and then and I always talk about Russia and, and my past and my story in the relation to the current events and what's happening there in recent years. Unfortunately, it's definitely like, a, you know, a few steps back. Mm. And it's sad, but at the same time, I feel like I do consider myself, to answer your question, I do consider myself a part of the larger community. I don't, I don't want to say that I specifically belong to the Russian community simply because I don't live there anymore. Right. You know, I follow the news, I know, I regularly talk to friends who are still there. I see them when they come to New York or wherever. I get a lot of mail from, from people who ask for my advice when, you know, they're trying to escape the country. The sad reality is that a lot of Russian gays are trying to escape and they don't see the situation getting any better, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. So, you know, that's the sad reality. And, you know, I actually meet more and more Russian expatriates here in New York, and they are new refugees, gay refugees, who actually managed to get 
political asylum sphere after the the new anti-gay law was adopted. So maybe that's the only positive side that came out of it. But it just said that all these talented people live in Russia in large numbers because I always say that I don't think that Russia any more homophobic or Russians are any more homophobic than any other nation. It just has to do with the policies and the government that is using this anti-gay card in a larger political game. And traditionally, if you look at different dictatorships throughout history, they were using gay people as a scapegoat, but also as a part of a larger campaign on other minorities and political and moral dissent. And Putin's regime is no exception in that regard, you know. It's basically what, what's in common between Putin and some dictators like Robert Mugabe in Africa. I feel like things are not getting better. And, you know, the bubble we live in, in places like New York or even Moscow and St. Petersburg for that matter, is not available in the vast majority of, even in America, you know, you cannot really be true to yourself in certain places where sodomy is still illegal. You know, we cannot take any of these freedoms and rights for granted, you know. As I said, uh, I see queer imagery is, as a way to address all these issues and also it's something that is worth fighting for because, you know, I'm, I'm still being censored just as much as I was in Russia, but now it's happening on a daily routine basis on social media, you know? All right, that's the episode. If you would like to find Slava out on the internet, be sure to visit his website at slavamoguten.com. That's S-L-A-V-A-M-O-G-U-T-I-N.com. He has a lot of his work on there and some biography stuff. It's a really nice website, so I recommend checking it out. In addition, if you live in New York City, he's going to be doing a book signing at the MoMA store in Soho at the end of June for his collection of photos, Bros and Brosephine. So we'll be posting a link to that event when it gets closer. If you live in Germany, he'll be doing a artist reception and artist talk at Gallery Kernwein which is in Stuttgart, Germany. The reception and opening are on Saturday, June 9th at 8 p.m. And the artist talk will be on Wednesday, June 20th at 7 p.m. If you want to buy the book from which Slava read, the book is called Pictures and Words, and it is available on Amazon. And thank you very, very much to Slava for coming on and talking to us. Yay! It was fun. I don't have anything else to add. Thank you, Thanks, Slava. Slava. We really, 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 really appreciate it. Okay, you're okay. not going to use that voice. You can't take my voice. <laughs> and then, of course, don't you dare forget to follow us on Twitter, Telegram, and Arena at She's in Russia. If you have a question about Russia, give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six. Sign up for our monthly image-based newsletter at she'sinrussia.com, and we will see you next week.